Praise God. I want to talk about a package of gifts that the Lord's given us, but really hone in on just one of those packages. Because I don't think we understand. In my prayer so often, it was a prayer I just recently prayed as well, I think last night or this morning, when I was seeking the Lord on behalf of you guys, that we better understand the height, the depth, the width, and the length of our Father. Amen? For us in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 3. And that's where he prays that we, we be filled with the fullness of God. But he wants us to understand the height and the depth, right? The width and the length, the hugeness, the bigness of God's love for us. It's so magnanimous. It's so galactic. It's beyond galactical. It's, it's beyond space and time. You know, as high as the heavens are from the earth, right? He's loved us. Amen. And that's in Psalm 103. So he has this incredible love for us expressed not only in his, the creative love in which giving us each our own fingerprint, making us in his image so we can share his love, amen, but in the cross, in Calvary, in redemption. And our lives should be all wrapped up and our lives should be filled with joy because that's his plan for you, you know? It's not just waking up tomorrow, Monday, and just going to work. He has much more for you than that. And there's a whole package of things he's done, all of which, you know, we... Can we, we spend Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, uh, times in fellowship, in and out uh, throughout the week, just trying to grasp the beauty of what he's done for us. But even before the world was created, before the foundations of the earth, it's funny, before I came up here, I want to focus specifically on justification today. And I had written about five or six things the Lord has done for us with justification being the main thing. And I debated within myself, Lord, you know, it's not too long of a message, but I know how I can get. So I'm praying that, uh, you know, about my message. And I, mm, should I talk about those things quickly, briefly, and then get into justification? Or just get right into justification? And say that word, justification. Say it, justification. It's a beautiful word, especially when you understand what it is. And uh, I wanted to talk about, briefly, about the things that are related to justification and God's overall plan and all the packages that blow away anything that will get under your tree today or Christmas Day, if you celebrate Christmas. The packages that are already being unwrapped, hopefully, by all of us. And then also about you being a package to the Lord. About you being properly wrapped up. And on my list, I had the first thing as predestination, along with these other things I want to mention. But I want to, as I mentioned, go more into justification. And as I got up... <laughs> Tony out of the blue just talks about, he just says, you know, talks about uh, being predestined before the foundations of the world. He just brings up the verse, you know. And, uh, and I thought, oh, it's funny because I have it under quick hits. Quick hits, predestination. Right after that, I'm like, okay, Lord, where did Tony just come up? It had no rhyme or reason. Tony, why did he even say that? He just put his hands up. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Anyway, so quickly. We have been predestined. A lot of people, sometimes you think of predestination, you think of it as synonymous with Calvinism, you know? And that's not what the Bible, the, the Cal, and so people frown at it because the viewpoint teaches what's called double predestination, Calvinism, that God has, before you were even created, predestined most people to burn in hell forever for his glory, even though he could save them, but he wants to show off his power by predestining them to eternal torment. Uh, and without a genuine choice before they're even created, and then the choices they make are based on what he predestined them to choose, based on their highest desires, and so forth, depending on the form of Calvinism you hold to. Uh, and then a, a select few are predestined to eternal life. 
Well, that's not the biblical view of predestination. The biblical view of predestination is actually very beautiful. It says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we've been predestined in love, right? And then over and over again, it talks about that predestination being in Christ, in Jesus. We're predestined in relationship to our relationship to Christ and God's foreknowledge. For it says in Romans chapter, chapter 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's the, that's the verse that Tony quoted as I was leaving, <laughs> before the foundation of the world, but then he said, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I go, man, Tony, you look, did you just see that one word on my notepad? Did you see that? No, he's shaking his head, no. Uh, so yeah, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. When? Before the foundation of the world. On what basis? Oh, good question, because we need to know that. Was it arbitrary? I just want some people to be saved and some people, to, most people to be damned or what have you? No, not arbitrary. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, listen carefully. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. For is a conjunction, okay? It goes with the verse before it. In the Greek, it's conjunction. In the English, it's a conjunction. For whom he foreknew, who's, who's he talking about? He's not speaking in vacuum. He's speaking about verse 28. One of the most popular verses in the Bible. Probably second most popular to John 3.16. God, who's talking about the ones he's predestining to be conformed to the image of his son. The ones he foreknew. Who does he foreknow? We know, it says, that God works all things together for the good. For those who what? Those who love God. Who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he foreknew who would love God. Amen. Because he's omniscient, amen? He knows all things, and he has foreknowledge. He has perfect foreknowledge. And the Bible says those who love God, in Corinthians it says, those who love God are known by him. Okay? He knows who will reject him. It speaks of those in Luke chapter 7, verse 30. Scribes and lawyers says they rejected God's purpose for themselves and refused to be baptized by John. So God knows who will reject the purpose of God's gospel, salvation. He knows who will reject it, and he knows who will accept it. In fact, it says in John chapter 2 that Jesus didn't commit himself to many who believed because he knew their hearts. Some of the Jews that didn't want to repent, and they didn't want to leave the synagogue because they loved the praise of God or praise of men more than the praise of God. He knew, so he didn't commit himself to them. But those who love him and respond to the gospel in love, and accept the free gift of salvation. He knows who that will be before the world began. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about before we were created, before the world began. We were chosen in him, chosen in Christ, before the foundations of the world. And we were predestined in love. On what basis? Paul says he predestined us according to his plan or purpose. NIV has plan, NASB has purpose. What was his plan? That whoever would believe in Jesus would be sealed after hearing the gospel. We're predestined in accordance with his plan. What's his plan? God so loved the world, Jesus says, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. He knows who will believe and who will reject. Amen? That's the decree. He that believes will be saved. Amen? He that rejects will be damned. But when does God know who will be saved? When does he know who will receive the gospel? Before we even existed. 
So it's based not, so your choice is factored in big time, right? Because, uh, you know, I can have a good idea of what someone's going to do ahead of time. can have a good idea of what my grandkids are going to do if I offer them this piece of candy versus a piece of, you know, overcooked squash. And which one they'll choose. Not because I'm super bright, but because it doesn't take much intelligence to know that. Well, God is all-wise, amen? And my, my knowing what choice they will make does not make their choice, does it? No. Right? If I drop this, will it hit this? Hit, will it, if I drop it from here, will it hit this? It's not a trick question you can answer. Yeah, how do you know that? Did you make it happen because you knew that? No, just because you know something. We know what happened in history. Did we make history happen? No. God knows the future. He doesn't force it to happen. Although obviously he invades history through his providence and he moves the chess players around and so forth to make sure the gospel gets to everyone who will receive it. Amen? So we are predestined. It's not a bad word. It's a beautiful word. Amen? We are elect. We are chosen in Christ. And then the next thing that happens is the gospel is presented to us. And when we put our trust in Jesus... And we accept the fact that he paid for our sins, that we're sinners, that we deserve judgment, and that Jesus died at our place. The Bible says we pass from death to life. Amen? We're justified. That's called justification. So the Bible teaches election, teaches predestination, teaches justification that we're declared righteous. How many of you sinners, all of us, are glad that you are justified, made right before God? Forgiven. Amen? Then what happens when you're justified, as soon as you're forgiven, right, guess what happens? God comes to live in you. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. You become a new creation. The Bible says, if anyone be in Christ is a new creation, behold, old things have passed away and all things have become new. Amen? So then you become what? Regenerated. Regeneration. So let's say predestination. Predestination. Let's say uh, election. Election. Let's say justification. Justification. Come on, we can say it. Give glory to God. Let's say regeneration. Regeneration. Amen. So these are all beautiful words. These blow away anything that will be under your Christmas tree. By far. We're born again. How, how many of you happy that you're born again? That you're a new creation? That you're not the old man that's headed to hell? That's by, so you can't be regenerated until you're forgiven, justified. Then God can come and live in you because you now have been forgiven. And you can be a holy sanctuary where he lives. And then after regeneration comes glorification. Let's say that. Glorification. Amen. What's glorification? We're, being, we're moving from glory to glory right now. Spiritually, we're being renewed day by day. The outer man, it says, decays day by day. The inner man's being renewed day by day. When you look in the mirror, you're like, man, I'm getting older. Thank the Lord that you're also getting newer in the place that matters most. Amen. And that glorification is not only taking place internally, but guess what? You will experience the resurrection. Amen? Amen? You'll be resurrected from the dead. And you have a glorious body. It says our bodies will be transformed and be made like in, unto his body. Paul said they'll become imperishable. Right? This perishable will put on that which is imperishable. The corruptible will put on that which is incorruptible. Amen? The mortal will put on that which is immortal. We will have new bodies forever and ever. Amen? Come on, man. We need to be excited about what Jesus has already done for us. 
Amen? This, these are all these packages are very wonderful. But I want to talk about one of these packages and unwrap it a little bit with you today, which I think we need to appreciate more, and that is justification. Justification, the word justification means to be declared righteous. Okay? To be declared forgiven. To be in a place where God no longer condemns you, even though you deserve condemnation. In the book of Job, chapter 25, verses 4 through 6, how then, it says, can a man be just with God? How can a man be just with God? How can you be right with God? How can you be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? How can a man be clean who is born of a woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, that's pretty heavy, how much less the, that maggot? Sons of men, right? That worm. How much less shall we, we're called maggots and worms in Scripture. Wow, that's such a put down. Nah, it is. <laughs> it is a put down. But we're worse than maggots and worms. I mean, I think of humanity. I mean, think of the paragons of virtue during the whole COVID thing that we've just gone through. There was a certain governor who was writing a book about how good a job he did regarding handling the COVID situation. Remember Cuomo? Governor Cuomo? He was writing a book about what a wonderful job he did, even though he shipped all kinds of COVID patients into nursing homes, and all kinds of people died as a result of that. And the mainstream media just ignored that over and over again. And then as the paragon of virtue, sadly, you know, he was involved in a bunch of, you know, sexual scandals to the degree that they made him step down. In the meantime, his brother, the star of CNN, their main guy, was saying, people were saying, how come he's not reporting? He had him, he has celebrated his brother, kind of preparing his brother for the presidency, it looked like, during COVID. And how come he's not reporting on what his brother did? But in the meantime, and he went and he said, hey, you know what, I'm going to kind of hands off. I'm just giving him some advice, you know, you know just a brotherly advice. In the meantime, he's writing to the, his accusers, his brother's accusers, trying to find dirt on them. Okay, now he was just fired by CNN. The producer, whoever, all these guys fired him. Then it just came out, it's in the news today, his producer was just found to be having sexual relations, a pedophile nine-year-old girl, others, okay? Contacting their mothers and telling their mothers to bring these little girls so he can give them sexual instructions and then having relations with them. This is a sick world we live in, man. It's a sin-sick world. And as soon as we go like this, look at this guy and this guy and this guy, there's still three fingers pointing back at us because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, there's a reason we lock our doors. There's a reason we try to secure our money. There's a reason we have passwords for our computers and everything else. Because people are wicked. People are evil. And the scriptures tell us that we are not right before God. We're very wrong before God. And that we deserve judgment. And the Bible compares our sin to excrement, human excrement, to filthy rags, women's that time of the month cloth, you know, tampons. So the Bible calls it to vomit, compares our sin to vomit. It's grotesque to God 
because it's rebellion against his holiness, his righteousness. And sin brings such pain. Sin is transgression of the law. And anything not done in faith, the Bible says, is, is sin. And by loving one another, we keep, and, and loving God, we keep his moral law. But nobody loves perfectly. We're called to love God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love our neighbor as ourselves. And no one does that perfectly. The only one that did that perfectly, of course, was Jesus. And we have sin. And the Bible says the wage of sin is death. And it's not just something we did wrong. It's intrinsically tied to our fallen natures. You understand that? We're sinful by nature, not just by choice. And each and every one of you know exactly what I'm talking about, that we struggle to live righteously. We struggle at times to make righteous decisions. And we have a sense of guilt. And the reason humans have a sense of guilt is because they're guilty. We're all guilty before God. So Job is asking a great question, you know. How then can a man be just with God, being a maggot and a worm? And why I said we're even worse than just the physical maggot and worms. I don't know worms that go around killing, each, killing a bunch of other worms. I don't know if they cheat on each other, but I know they don't seem to kill each other. I don't know how they would kill each other. It'd be kind of tough, I guess. But it's interesting. How can we be justified? Justified means to be, when it, the, the word justified means to be made right with God. But we're not right with God. How can that happen? Go to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And I love this, man. It says in verse, chapter 18, verse 9, And he who told this parable, and he also told this parable to some of the people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. See, some trust in themselves that they're righteous and view others in a very negative way. Even religious leaders like the Pharisees, they trusted in their own righteousness. And Jesus told a parable because he knew a lot of the religious leaders didn't, need, didn't think they needed forgiveness. They thought, man, they're righteous because they're obeying the law of Moses. Surely they'll get into heaven. And Jesus said two men went up into a temple, or the temple, to pray. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Okay, so you have a Pharisee who's considered the paragon of virtue in that society, and you have a tax collector who is considered the paragon of vileness because the tax collectors worked with the Romans. They were Jews often who sold out to Rome and were betraying their own people to show them, get them the money, and then they'd get rich off their own people by stabbing them in the back. Not much different than some IRS people today. Uh, not all of them, though. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. I love how Jesus says that. He was praying this to himself. He's praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So he sees the tax collector, he's like, and even like this guy. Thank you that I'm not like that. I fast twice a week. Wow. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So it's great he was fasting. It's great he was tithing and helping, you know, uh, the work of God. But guess what? He thought that that covered up all of his sin or ignored his sin because of what he was doing that was, he considered righteous. Then he compared himself with others. The Bible says it's not wise to compare yourself with others. 
there's a big problem with that. When you start comparing yourself with others, one of two things happens. Either you feel horrible and you're envious or you exalt yourself and you're full of pride. What we need to do is compare ourselves with Jesus Amen. and realize, wow, we fall really, really short and we need forgiveness. And then we rejoice when we get forgiven and come to him. Amen? Now, it's interesting here because <laughs> he sees this Pharisee and he's, the Pharisee you know, sees the tax gatherer and he's comparing himself. But the Pharisee, if you were to walk in there, you'd think, man, that tax gatherer. Oh, the Pharisee, oh, what a holy man. But Jesus talked about the Pharisees. He said, inwardly, you know, outwardly, they look great like a tomb, like tombstones. You know, they look like a grave. They just look beautiful. But inwardly, they're like those same graves are filled with death, you know? Because that's what the heart is without Jesus. He has to come into our hearts. He has to change us. Amen? In fact, there was a saying, I've shared this with you before, that the Jews had back in Jesus' day where they said, if only two people get to heaven, one will be a scribe and one will be a Pharisee. That's how people thought. Man, if only two people made it, it will be a scribe and Pharisee because they are just amazing. But you know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Go to Matthew 5. You don't, no, don't go there, literally. I mean, but think about it. In Matthew chapter 5, you can. Uh, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That doesn't seem to leave any hope then, right? Unless God makes us righteous, amen? That's the key, guys. Unless the Lord justifies us, amen? Praise Jesus. So, uh, now it's interesting because verse 13, we read this. But, in contrast, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. That was because of the conviction of his deep sin. But was beating his breast, just beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a, the sinner. Now it's interesting, he doesn't just say a sinner. There's a definite article in the Greek, be merciful to me, the sinner, meaning I stand out. This Pharisee made himself stand out in light of the tax collector. And you could always do that and make yourself seem justice, justified in your own sight because you could always find people that are doing worse than you. That's not the way you do it, guys. But this guy just says, he compares himself this way. I'm the sinner, right? And the only person he seems to be referring to besides himself is God. And I'm the sinner. I'm in trouble, you know? But he says, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. The sinner, I tell you this man, Jesus said, now it's important, verse 14, Jesus' commentary on this. I tell you, this man went to his house, what? Justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. So if you run around thinking, man, I'm, look how good I am. And I'm, I'm such an awesome guy or I'm an awesome gal and look at all the neat things I'm doing and I'm surely I'm going to get to heaven. Ooh, you're going to be humbled. You will not enter the kingdom. But if you humble yourself and say, man, I'm the sinner, God. I need mercy. Have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. You'll leave not only the temple in, that, in those days or you'll leave the church today. If your heart's right with God, you're saying, hey, be merciful to me, a sinner, God. I want to be right with you. I, want, I need your forgiveness. Have mercy on me. You could be right with God. You could be justified. So justification, as we're seeing here, entails being forgiven, receiving God's mercy, receiving his forgiveness for our sins. Amen? 
But we have to admit our sins, amen? Go to Romans chapter 3, please. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Romans chapter 3. And now, it's interesting because Paul has a lot to say about the Gentiles being sinners and the Gentile world being involved in sin in the first chapter. Uh, and then chapter 2, he says, hey, look, the Jews are also guilty of sin. Even though they've received the law of God, they're guilty too. And then chapter 3 emphasizes how everybody's guilty. And then chapter 3, verse 10, we read this. As it is written, there is none righteous, not who? Not one. There's not one person among us that's righteous or in the world that's righteous. There is none who understands. Paul brings a lot of Old Testament verses together. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is none, none not even, or there is not even one. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. Wow. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the paths of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed. And all the world may become what? Accountable to God. Because by the works of the law... No flesh will be what? Justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if somebody's like, like that Pharisee, look at I've kept your laws. I even do more than your law says. I fast twice a week, you know? And guess what? No one is to be justified by God because they think they're keeping God's law because no one has kept it even close to perfect. Amen? So that verse right there at the end of verse, or verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. A lot of the Jews said, well, God gave us his law so we could be right with him by obeying his law. And God, by the way, if you obeyed his law 100% perfectly, you would be right with him. But no one has. So what's the other purpose of the law? Well, not only show God's righteousness, it says at the very end of verse 20, for through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. The law is given to us to show the law that was given to them, the law of Moses, which also entails the, the, the moral law of God. The moral law of God is written on every one of our hearts. We know it's wrong to murder. We know it's wrong to lie to people. We know it's wrong to commit adultery. We know it's wrong to steal. And God gives us a conscience. Conscience. Con with, right? With science or science or knowledge. We have within ourselves knowledge of the fact that we're sinners. That's why we experience guilt. And God's law is given so we, know, we realize we need a, the Savior, that we're sinners, that we can't be saved by obeying it, so we need to be forgiven by knowing Jesus. Amen? Amen. So now, I think it's awesome because, well, look at verse 23. For all have what? Same chapter, Romans 3, 23. For all have sin, sin and fall short of the glory of God. Wow. Verse 24, being justified, being justified, we just said we can't be justified by our works. We're not going to be made right with God through our works, but being justified as a gift by his grace, as a gift, guys, by his grace through the redemption, which is in where? In Christ Jesus. We have justification through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, amen? Through his death, taking our penalty upon himself. 
That's how we're justified, through faith in Christ. It's a free gift. Now, Paul gives Exhibit A, an incredible illustration as to what it means to be justified and how we're not justified by our works, but by his grace through faith. In fact, look at chapter 4, verse 1. Exhibit A he gives is Abraham. And this is a great illustration because, especially for the Jewish mind, who was the father of the Jewish nation? Abraham. He's the father of the faith. Amen? And Paul points out Abraham was never, Abraham, the law came long after Abraham. He was never justified or made right by keeping God's law. Well, then they would say, well, he was justified because he was circumcised. Because to be part of Abraham's family, spiritually speaking, you had to be circumcised. And Abraham was circumcised, and that's what made him righteous. Many of the Jews thought that. But look at what Paul does. Paul goes to the scripture. And in Romans chapter 4, look what Paul says. What then shall we say? Or what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, what? Believed. believed God. That's faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Now he's quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, very first book of the Bible, when God's dealing with Abraham. He's quoting where Genesis says he believed God, and because of his faith, it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Verse 4. Now to the one who works, the one who works, like I'm going to do it myself, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. That's pretty heavy. If you work your tail off, and let's say you, you do it perfectly, that's not a favor to God. You don't get any credit for that extra credit. That's just what's due. Like Jesus said, when someone comes in, the servant comes in, right? He doesn't, his master doesn't, you know, give him thanks because that was, he's only done his duty, right? You're simply doing your duty. But no one can even do their duty perfectly. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, who does he justify? The ungodly. That verse, verse 23, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned. Sin is in the past tense, but and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short is in the present tense. For those who say, oh, we can reach sinless perfection here and never, ever grieve God's spirit again and be absolutely perfect for the rest of our lives. Oh, I'm sorry, it says all have sinned in the past, but guess what? All still, what? Present tense, fall short of God's glory. On your perfect day, you're not as good as Jesus still. Believe me. Okay, don't think you are. That doesn't mean we can't live righteous lives. We ought to, as Christians, that's where, where when I taught, I skipped one word, which I bring up to you now. I mentioned predestination and I mentioned election. I mentioned uh, justification. I mentioned regeneration. And I jumped to glorification. And then I skipped one word. It starts with an S. What is it? Sanctification. Amen. Well, after we are justified and regenerated, what happens? As soon as we're regenerated and born again, guess what God starts doing in our lives and our hearts? starts making us more like Jesus. Amen. We, be, we start to become holy. Amen. And we become more and more holy and more and more like Jesus. Amen. And he that is putting his trust in Jesus, right? There's evidence that, because the Bible says faith without works is what? Is dead. Amen. So those who are trusting Jesus, we become more and more like Jesus. Amen. In fact, it's funny, I, I, I missed the S. Out of all, I probably emphasize sanctification more than any, any of the other aspects in this fellowship. Because guess what Protestants have down really well? Justification. 
And they have it down so well that they begin to abuse grace and ignore sanctification. That's why I have to emphasize sanctification so much. But I love to talk about justification. So here we are. But so it's interesting here because look what he says. And this is very important. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So your faith, the righteousness that you don't have, that you're in trouble because you don't have, because you put your trust in Jesus, you're credited with righteousness. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man of, on whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Now he's quoting King David, right? Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man, blessed is a man, blessed, that's happy, fat, satisfied, you know, full in Christ. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Okay? All this is very important. Now look at verses 9 and 10. Back to exhibit A, Abraham. Is this blessing then of, on the circumcised? Remember, the Jews had to be circumcised. And that's how a lot of them felt that they were part of God's kingdom. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, now check this out. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. He returns to Genesis 15, 6. In case they put it out of their minds, you're, you're, you're justified by faith, right? Now look at verse 10. How then was it credited? How did Abraham get credited with righteousness? Based on his good works? How then is it credited, verse 10, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he, not while circumcised, but while what? Uncircumcised. Now it's important. Why? Because long before Abraham was circumcised, chapter 15, verse 6 takes place. He's made right with God. He's declared righteous long before Abraham was circumcised. Long before he did anything. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved by Christ's perfect obedience, becoming the righteous Lamb of God, dying for our sins on the cross. Amen? Rising again. Now, it's important to understand because today, millions of people believe that they're right with God because they go to church. No, it doesn't make you right with God. Millions of people believe today that they're right with God not because they're circumcised, but because they were baptized when they were a baby. Or when they were adult, they say, I've, I witnessed people all the time, and somebody just recently said, well, I was baptized to me when I was sharing with them. Wrong. That's not what makes you righteous. It's the blood of Christ, which was shed on the cross on your behalf. And through faith in him, if you're having faith, that you become righteous. Abraham. Now, Paul's using the Old Testament because the Jews were steeped in the Old Testament. Amen. He said to the Jews, Jesus said, you search the scriptures diligently because in them you believe that you have eternal life, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. So he is the way, the truth, and life. We can't be justified or made righteous by our works. Not even by a little bit of our works added on. Our works don't justify us at all. We're justified by grace through faith. He declares us righteous. I love Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians 1.30 or your phones, whatever you use today. 1 Corinthians 1.30. You need to understand justification because when you understand justification, you're thankful to God for your justification. It helps you grow in your sanctification as well and, and it redounds to God's praise and glory. 
1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Paul says, but by his doing, not your own doing, by his doing you are what? In Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and what? Sanctification and what? Redemption. But notice in the middle of this verse, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, and our righteousness is connected to us being in Christ Jesus, which we'll get to in a minute. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Praise God. He is the wisdom of God. He's the word of God made flesh. He's the logos. Amen. And what? Righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. If God just looked at you and your sin on judgment day, you'd be thrown in the lake of fire. Right? But Christ is our righteousness. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, He, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So Jesus took our place and took the penalty for sin on our behalf. So that we might what? Amen. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God. Apart from Christ, we're just in our sins. But God made him, Jesus, the Son of God, he sent into the world, Emmanuel, God with us, take our sin. Jesus chose to, obviously. And he took our sin so that we could be in him and have his righteousness. Amen. That's is very, very important. Think of the debt that you are in spiritually. Can you imagine being in incredible debt just monetarily in the physical world? Think of the guy that was owed 10,000 talents. I have went through the money, how much money that is when you look at the tax system back then. It was like all oh, the money in, it's in, in, the, in a huge region of the Roman world. And I point out that a talent, man, a talent would take like a lifetime to earn. But he was in debt. How many talents? 10,000 talents. He could not pay it back. But he was forgiven. Amen? And Jesus said, this is how the kingdom of God works. He was forgiven. He pleaded for mercy. cried, oh, Master, have mercy on me. And he was forgiven 10,000 talents. Well, guess what? Let's say you're forgiven $10 million. And if he didn't get forgiven, he was going to go to debtor's prison. And he wouldn't get out until he paid the last penny. Doomed forever. But let's say you owe a ton of money. And they look at your account. And it's not only empty, because our account isn't just empty of good works. We have a bunch of, we're in the negative, amen. I mean, we're bankrupt. We're spiritually bankrupt. That's why Jesus starts the most impressive message, best message ever preached on the planet, the Sermon on the Mount, with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom of God. You have to recognize that you're spiritually poor because until you recognize that you're a sinner and you admit that you're a sinner, you will never seek the righteousness of Christ. You'll just trumpet whatever riches you can make up in your life. Why do you think these people that are pro-killing millions of babies, you know? I mean, that champion killing babies are like, save the whales, save the spotted owl. I don't think they care much, honestly, about the whale and the spotted owl. 
Because if you can't care about a little baby, I don't think you care about anything, ultimately. But I think people do that because they want to say, what did Adam and Eve do when they got caught in their sin? They covered themselves with fig leaves, right? Did that cover their sin? No. No. And save this will and save the spot of Allah is not going to save you from your sins. God's not impressed. If you have a good motives and you want to save the whales, praise God, I'm all for saving whales. I'm all for saving owls. I love, I love uh, the creatures God has made. But I'm not going to hang my hat on that before God on Judgment Day. I'm not going to hang save the babies and say, I marched in front. I've stood before abortion clinic talking to gals before. And I'll continue to witness. And I've, been, I've spoken at a CPC banquet and we've supported, uh, praise God, I was just watching my... It was awesome. We were in Idaho living with Kenny and Peggy and my mom at that Peggy and Kenny, my mom's house. And we had a great time there. And it was awesome because Peggy's got a job where she's working like six hours a day. And I could hear through the door, she's counseling gals who want to get abortions. And she's with a ministry where they, re, they route them to CPCs and so forth. And they, get, and they get to see ultrasounds. And before you know it, babies are being saved, you know. What a, what a beautiful ministry, you know. But I know Peggy on Judgment Day is not going to say, look what I've done, Lord. You'll accept me on this basis. I know she's going to say, praise God, Jesus died for me because her trust is in him. And we had a beautiful time spending with them and the the fellowship there in Idaho, the Blessed Hope there. You guys are awesome. We love you guys. Praise God for you. Uh, But we need to understand and make sure we, none of us are putting trust in what we've done to be right with God. We need to make sure our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we just saw a couple verses where it says that he's our righteousness. So you, you're totally bankrupt. You don't have that 10 million you know, or 10,000 talents and 10,000 lifetimes worth of work in your bank account. You're doomed. But guess what? What if someone's super rich imputed or credited that money to your account? Well, who's rich enough? Only one, God. That's why the Bible says no one can redeem his own brother. You can't ransom your own brother because there's none righteous. No, not one. That's why God became a man. That's why we have the first Christmas, amen? That's why we celebrate Christ coming into the world. If Jesus didn't come into the world to die for our sins, we would be in our sins to this day. We would not be able to celebrate that we're forgiven, amen? So this is so, so important. Uh, I love Romans 5.18, listen to this. So then, as through one transgression, that's Adam's one sin, there resulted condemnation to all men because his sin, humanity fell into sin. We, we have a fallen nature. Adam means man, He represented all of us. He was our champion. If his name was Joe, we'd all be blaming Joe. Okay? If his name was Michael, I love you, Michael. Or Luke, I love you, Luke. Right? We'd all be blaming, because he represented all of us. And, but we're not punished because of his sin, because there's an age of accountability, right? For the Jews, it was 13, you know? They do their bar mitzvah at 13. And when you begin to hit that age of accountability, man, you're, you're, you choose sin, then you're condemned. Because the Bible says no one shall be condemned because of the sin of their fathers. Okay? But guess what? We have a sinful nature. As soon as we choose to go along with that, we're doomed. And we don't know exactly what the age of accountability is just because the Jew says 13 doesn't mean it's 13. That's when they became men. But I'm telling you right now, we're all guilty before God who can understand that we've fallen from, uh, from his righteousness. Now, another great illustration. Abraham's Exhibit A, but one of my favorite illustrations of of God's grace, of justification, is um, Meshibapheth. Remember him? He was a son of, or descendant of who? Saul, right? Saul was like the first Adam. He rebelled against God. He was given a great position like Adam was. He rebelled against God. 
And, well, his child or descendant in the faith, Mephibosheth, they were running in rebellion because David had become king. And David is a picture of Jesus. The son of David is Jesus, amen. And they're running in rebellion. And when a new king came, especially if you were an evil king like Saul was, you'd be wiped out, the other kingdom, because of future insurrections that would take place to make sure the other king didn't come back with his family. And guess what? Mephibosheth is being held by his nursemaid. She runs away. She's running for their lives, and they fall down. And he falls, and perhaps it was his spine, but he ends up being crippled. Amen? That's a picture of you and me. We were crippled because of the fall. Amen? Amen. Starting with Saul. Not trying to make a rhyme here. It just worked, okay? Uh, <laughs> so what happens is, is then what happens to Mephibosheth? He should be, he called himself a dead dog. He admitted his sin, amen? He admitted his sin. I've done whole teachings on this over and over again, two or three times since I've been a pastor, on how, what a beautiful typology, beautiful picture, picture Meshibapheth is of our salvation. Oh, and where does he go hang out at? Does anybody remember? Come on, guys, you remember? Where does Meshibapheth hang out? Where is he hiding? A place called Lodabar. He's a dead dog, deserving death, a, a, in a, the kingdom of darkness, but he, he's crippled from the fall, all that. It's, what's a, this is not an accident, all these typologies, pictures in Scripture. He's hiding in Lodabar. I told you what Lodabar means. It's, it means nothingness. In fact, after I gave a message on this a couple years ago, uh, I got a text from Ted and Linda. And, uh, no, actually, they came and visited. They just visited our house a couple times last we love you guys too, Ted and Linda. You guys are awesome, and they listen to messages, so praise God for you guys. But when they were visiting the other time, which they had a hard time coming back because they had to make sure they got their citizenship uh, legally to leave the country, but they finally, after uh, eight years or something, were able to come and visit us. That was, what, oh, two years ago or whenever it was. She said, Joe, that message, she liked the message on Mephibosheth. She goes, and it's funny because she goes, you're saying it means nothingness. She goes, you know, in Israel, because they speak Hebrew, when we're speaking Hebrew, when we say it's nothing, we say it's Lodabar. <laughs> It's, oh, it's Lodabar. I thought, that's so cool, man. I didn't know that, you know? So, uh, but that, that's where he was living. That's who we were before Christ, amen? We were dead dogs living in nothingness, had no future, no hope, and we're under the wrath of God. But the Bible tells us that because of who? His, well, because of Jesus. But who was Mephibosheth's dad? He's the descendant of Saul. Well, he's the descendant of Saul, but he's the child of Jonathan. So he's his grandchild of Saul, but he was a child of Jonathan, who was Saul's son. And because David had this incredible love for Jonathan, it says, for Jonathan's sake, he forgave Meshibapheth. The father, he has incredible love for his son. We are now, Christ is our righteousness. We're forgiven in him, amen? And because of his righteousness, because of Christ, the father forgives us. Sometimes I use that acronym. We use that acronym GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Amen? Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense because of what Jesus did for us and because of Jonathan, David forgave Mephibosheth because of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, the Father forgives us. And what happened? you remember Mephibosheth? Remember what happened? What happened to him from that day onward? He was brought to the palace and he ate at the king's table. Now, you go from a dead dog being nothingness to being in the palace at the king's table eating every night. You're doing pretty good. Does that help you wrap your head around grace? 
Not because he did it. He didn't go. He was crippled. And by the way, he was still crippled. Right? Our good works still don't add to God's acceptance of us. He still, to this day, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. To this day, we're still fallen. To this day, he still accepts us on the basis of what Christ did. Some Christians believe wrongly that you're forgiven when you come to Christ, and now you got a clean slate. And now you have to live perfect every day after that, or God won't accept you. No, we are in Christ, amen? Doesn't mean that you're not becoming more holy, but if you're trusting Jesus, you're going to become more like him, but you're accepted based on what Jesus did for you and who he is, amen? His righteousness. Are you with me today? You need to understand that. Because I, I, there's Christians out there that think, man, you know, like I just got a clean slate. Now, oh, I sinned, now I've lost again. And then they repent. Oh, now I'm right with God again. And I'm saved again. Oh, I sinned, and oh, I'm lost again. And they think it just gave them a clean slate of all the past sins, and now they need to, they're going to be, you know, lost every time they sin. Now, there's two extremes. One extreme is to say, hey, you're lost every time you sin. Another extreme is to say, hey, I don't need to follow Jesus now because I was forgiven. You were forgiven, and if you're in Christ, we're in Christ through, by grace, through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. That doesn't mean you could go on and say, oh, remember the guy was forgiven 10,000 talents? Totally forgiven, 100% saved. But then what did he do? He went and go and strangle that other guy who owed him money. And then Jesus said, what? Or the master says, what? Because the servants say, hey, the guy you forgave that 10,000 talents, he's, doing the, he's choking a guy out that owns him nothing compared to what you forgave him. He says, bind him hand and foot and put him with the, what? Into the, the prison until he pays the last penny. The same guy was forgiven 10,000 talents. So Jesus, the Bible's not teaching that you can just go live however you want after you get, you know, forgiven. But at the same time, there's another extreme you better watch out for. Oh, I'm right with God, I'm forgiven, but now anytime I sin, now I'm going to hell. That's not true. Jesus talked about how we are branches in the tree, amen? And if a man doesn't abide, eventually he'll be cut off. But it doesn't say if the man falls short one time, he's cut off. No, it's talking about a continuous rebellion uh, against God. Uh, so the scriptures tell us that we're justified. And one way to understand that is that you are in Christ right now. If you fall short of God's glory, it's not a good thing at all. If you fall short of God's glory, when we sin, it's not a good thing. But guess what? When you fall short of God's glory, it doesn't mean you're outside of Christ and you're not in him anymore. Amen? Amen. It means that you need to be forgiven still. You need to get, ask God for forgiveness. But you're still the branch and the vine, and you're still robed with his righteousness. Now, can you go astray, and can you commit apostasy and turn away and go the other way? Yeah, you can. But who wants to do that? Hopefully none of you want to do that. Amen? Like Peter said, after Jesus said to him, will you two go away? After John chapter 6, verse 66, and many followed him no longer. And he says to Peter, will you two go away? He goes, where will I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You need to treasure the gifting, the gifts that you have in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, he is our righteousness. Amen? Amen. He is our righteousness. And and this is exciting, man, because guess what? You don't just get taken out of Lodabar nothingness and brought into his kingdom. We're going to sit at the table of the Lord. We celebrate the table of the Lord pretty much every Sunday. But we're literally going to sit with Jesus. And Jesus says he's going to serve us. What in the world? Talk about grace. That's just mind-blowing. Another really, really good illustration I love of justification is in the book of Philemon. Amen. 
Go to Philemon, please. Philemon. The book of Philemon. Now, the book of Philemon is a little book. If you can't find it, it's just right before Hebrews, okay? Or what else should I say? I say right after Hebrews, right? Uh, Philemon. Go to Philemon, and it's a great illustration. Now, this book, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, you have Philemon, who is a personal friend of Paul's that Paul had shared the gospel with, who got saved. Okay, in those days they had slaves, and he has a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus isn't a believer. Onesimus runs away. He's a runaway slave. Runs from Colossae to uh, Rome. And Onesimus meets up with Paul. We don't know if it was by accident or he was seeking Paul. Either way, it was by God's divine providence that he ends up this slave, Onesimus, talking to the Apostle Paul. And apparently he had maybe taken some of Philemon's money with him or ripped him off in some way. We don't know exactly what the nature of his debt was. Maybe it was mostly his time uh, that, you know, maybe he was. Many slaves in those days were what we call indentured servants. Okay, they had owed a bunch of money to someone and they didn't pay it back and then they had to work for them for some time. We don't know the nature of his slavery, his servitude, but we do know this, that Paul, writing from a Roman prison full of grace, encourages Philemon to forgive Onesimus. In fact, if you look at verse 19, Paul says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. I will what? I'll repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. <laughs> he kind of mentions it, though, but he basically lets him know, you wouldn't be saved if I didn't share the gospel with you, uh, Philemon. He wants Philemon to recognize what God has done in him and how he, could be, he should be doomed right now, but God's shown him grace. But this is very interesting. Look at verses 17 and 18. If then you regard me a partner, Paul says to Philemon, if then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Verse 18. But if he has wronged you, in any way, or owes you anything, charge that what? Charge that to my account. Wow. Now remember, I mentioned how the guy that was forgiven the 10,000 talents refused to forgive another guy? And then his forgiveness was rescinded? Because one thing that happens when we're forgiven by the Lord God, if our hearts have been made right, right? And we're, we're, we, only be, we get declared righteous, when you come to Jesus, you put your faith in Christ, amen? Even though you still fall short of God's glory, you're declared righteous, amen? But when he declares you righteous, then he makes you righteous inwardly, sanctification, right? But you have a choice to harden your heart or not. And apparently, the guy that was forgiven 10,000 talents hardened his heart. But man, how can we be forgiven such a great debt and not forgive others who owe us nothing compared to what we owe God? Amen? So we need to come to terms with that and be forgiving even when we're really hurt by people and say, God, help me have a disposition of love toward you. There's something really heavy going on here because guess what? That's happened to Paul. A lot of people owe Paul things, but he's not begging for it back. 
In fact, he forgives people left and right. Read Timothy and other books. But guess what? He wants Philemon to understand that you've been forgiven this huge debt, Philemon. And guess what, Philemon? Even if you don't want to forgive him from your heart, two things. Whatever he owes you, charge it to me. And then what? Also, receive him as you would receive what? Me. Who is that a picture of? Jesus. Think about both those things. It's heavy. Paul is just being Christ-like. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now he's inviting Philemon to follow him as he follows Christ. He's saying two heavy things. Charge me whatever he may owe you. Guess what Jesus did? He took what we owed, right? And he went to the cross. He paid for our sins on the cross. What was charged against us, he took that upon himself. Amen? And then what else did Paul say? Receive him as you receive me. Instead of receiving him like a slave, right? Receive him with my status as an apostle. How would you treat me? Because Paul says to him, it's up to, it's up to Philemon, because perhaps he's an indentured servant or what have you. But Paul says, I found, you know, he found him fruitful. He'd love him to send him back. Because he sends Onesimus to Philemon. But he's hoping that Philemon will have Christian love in his heart, which is, by the way, what ended up overthrowing the Atlantic slave trade through the preaching of Wesley and the politicking of Wilberforce and others, the, the love of Christ. And he's hoping that Philemon will have the love of Christ in him, but he's showing him a picture of Christ. Guess what? Isn't this to me, to me, hopefully to you too, this is such a powerful picture of God's grace. It's such a powerful picture of justification. Why? Because number one, charge it to me what he owes. Christ took what we owed and it was charged to him on the cross. Amen? And then what? Keep in mind, what's the next thing as well? Receive him Philemon, as you would receive me, not as a slave in debt to you, but as a privileged apostle. Amen? And guess what happens with us? We're not only forgiven because Jesus took what was charged to us, but he also charged or gave us and credited to us his own righteousness. Amen? So now when the Father has us at his table, he no longer sees our, re our past rebellion, our sins, but what? He sees the righteousness of Christ. That one act of righteousness, what Jesus did on the cross for us, based on his perfect life, he could give the perfect sacrifice. And God now sees us as forgiven and declares us righteous because the debt has been paid and now he sees us in Jesus. Are you with me today? That's a powerful, powerful, powerful picture of justification. Philemon is, Mephibosheth is, Abraham is. I've given you a few illustrations to illustrate this point. And I think it's incredible because that should change our hearts by way of application. It should cause us to be thankful. Amen? Where we don't look to our own righteousness to be right with God. We look to what Jesus did on the cross for us. Amen? The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a what? Gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen? By grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should brag or boast about it. Amen? So it's all about what he has done for us. And he's done a lot. And by the way, to me, the cross 
is the simplest symbol on the, in the world because God wanted it to be simple for people to understand. But it's also the most profound symbol in the world because God became a man and died on the cross for our sins. And yes, it shows what he had to go through for us and that he paid the penalty. But it's also instructive because the two bars, the, the crossbar, the vertical bar, it, it's, it's like a line between us and the Father, amen? And when Christ died on the cross, he was forgiving our sins, amen? Not holding our trespasses against us. Then you have the horizontal crossbar, right? That's from me to you, you to me. Because we've received the grace that comes from him, now we need to extend it to one another, amen? So we live through the ethic of the cross. The cross teaches us about God's love, but also teaches us how to live, amen? It's simple, but profound. And, you know, we, you know, justification is free. It's free. It's a free gift, but it's not cheap. It took a great cost. I mean, remember the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16? The high priest would have to atone for the sins of all the people through, the, through two goats, right? On that day, the Day of Atonement, he'd have to slit the throat of a goat that would bleed to death and fall dead. He would also let a second goat go away after he put his hands on it and laid hands on it and transferred symbolically the sins of Israel onto that goat. And it went into the wilderness. And according to the Jewish writings, the Jews would spit on it and everything else. I thought, wow, that's a powerful picture of what they did to Jesus. But Jesus isn't a goat. The Bible tells us that if the, if the blood of goats and you know, bulls and right, lambs, so turtle doves, you know, could, could, could save us. He went, Jesus went to had to come, amen? But they were pictures of what God would do. In fact, the high priest had to have forgiveness so he could go in to the temple, right, and offer the blood. The high priest is a picture of Jesus. Jesus didn't need forgiveness. He's the one that was bloodied for us, amen? He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world like the scapegoat. We get that term scapegoat from that goat that was shooed off into the wilderness. Because it took two goats, guys. Two goats to be two different pictures of the same Messiah. He was bloodied for us, but he also took away our sins. Amen? Yes. So it's important that we get this. It's important that we understand that, this. And Job says in Job chapter 25, verse 4, remember, how then can a man be just with God? <laughs> how much less man than um, that maggot, that son of man, that worm? How could we become just before God, us maggots, us worms? Well, God became a worm for us. Psalm twenty-two, fourteen: I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Wow, 22, 16, and 18. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count on my bones. They, 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 they look and they, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And my clothing, for they, my clothing they cast lots. This is speaking of Jesus, okay? Chapter 22, verse 6, I am a worm, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. On the cross, Jesus became like a worm. He took our place so we could take his place, amen, and be seated with him at the Father's throne. And it says in Revelation chapter 3, I think around verse 21, that those who overcome, those who keep their faith in Jesus, We'll be seated with Jesus. Jesus said, you'll be seated with me on my throne even as I overcame and sat with my Father on his throne. Wow. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Listen to this. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. 
and all of us like a, like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. So we're like filthy garments. That's you and your own righteousness. That's the Pharisee tooting out, wow, look how great I am, man. I fast twice a week. I give to the poor. But God sees just filthy garments. But then look at what 61 says, verse 10 of Isaiah. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will rejoice in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Amen? He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. That's what I was saying. Salvation doesn't just give you a clean slate when you come to Jesus and get forgiven of your past sins. Oh, it does say you're forgiven of your past sins. Praise God for that. 2 Peter chapter 2 says he forgives us our past sins. Amen? But guess what? Now you're robed in righteousness. Amen? So even though you're not perfect yet, and you still fall short of God's glory, you're still robed in righteousness if you are trusting Jesus. You are justified before God. Are you with me? Amen. It's not like you just got a clean slate. You're now declared righteous in the righteousness of Christ. And that comes through faith. Amen? Amen. So I close with Matthew chapter 22. We'll go there and just read it briefly, quickly. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Sound familiar? And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. And they were unwilling to come. Notice they were what? Unwilling to come. Even though Jesus in the next chapter, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 37 through 39, says, Oh, like, you know, like a hen who gathers her chicks, I was willing to gather together. Right? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who slays the prophets and kills those who are sent to her. How often I would gather together as a hen does her chicks, your children together as a hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. They were unwilling to come to the, to the wedding feast. Verse 4, again he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Verse 5, but they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. It's a picture of what they did to the prophets. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. That happened in 70 AD, not long after this happened. Not long after Jesus was crucified. Verse 8, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. We're supposed to go out all the all world, amen, and preach the gospel between the highways and high, byways. Verse 10. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in what? Wedding clothes. Evidently, the king would provide garments so you could be, have the right attire for the wedding. But this guy said, Nop, I like my filthy rags. Verse 10, verse 12. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Remember, says everybody speechless before God on Judgment Day. Verse 13. Then the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are what? Few are chosen. Many are called, whosoever will may come, amen. But some are unwilling to come, so they're not chosen. They refuse to come. That's why they're not chosen. That's why they're not predestined. God knows they're unwilling. 
Others say, I'm going to come, but I'm doing it on my own righteousness. And they're thrown into outer darkness. You cannot trust your own righteousness. Your own righteousness is like filthy rags. You must trust in the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? So, guys, we don't need to just unwrap or just unwrap gifts. We're unwrapping the gift of justification this morning. Hopefully you're rejoicing in the fact that Jesus came and died for you so you'd be right for God. Amen? But you also need to make sure you wrap a present to God. And that is you need to make sure that you're wrapped up in the robes of Christ's righteousness. Amen? So you can be accepted. And how does that happen? Oh, I just got to do a bunch of works and find the best wrapping paper and just tie the best bow. No, he already did the work on the cross. Sin was credited to our account by our own doing. We credit it to our account, amen? When Christ died on the cross, he said, paid in full, right? Remember that Greek word? What's the young man, what's that Greek word? Tetelestai, amen, paid in full. Even little kids know Greek here. Tetelestai, <laughs> paid in full. It's an accounting term. When he died on the cross, he cried out, paid in full. The Bible says in Colossians chapter two that our debt, our sin debt, the decrees that were written against us were nailed to the cross. Amen? He satisfied all of our debt that we owed before God. Amen? He's our propitiation. He's our satisfaction. It's all in Jesus. So make sure when you go to God, you recognize that he's the one that ultimately wraps the gift. But you have to have faith and put your trust in him. Amen? And you'll pass from death to life. So if you want to be right before God, hopefully you come today saying, I'm just going to be a good person and God will accept me. No, that's not why he accepts you. You need to say, you know what? I'm going to put my trust in Jesus and what he did for me on the cross and accept his forgiveness so I can be justified and accepted by God. Amen? And then because he loves me, because he's good, because he's such an awesome God, he's going to change my heart, sanctification, and make me more like Jesus. Amen? And then you'll have good works, which are for his glory, but not to earn your salvation. Amen? Praise God. Did everybody understand that message? I can give it again. I have, by the grace of God, good endurance. If you want more? Let's all stand up.